consider the football field. The middle is not the 50-yard line. The middle I would have you consider is the entire playing field from this end zone all the way down the field to the other end zone. And the black and white either-or thinkers, all or nothing, are trying to play a game in the end zone, which is out of bounds. The only thing you can do in an end zone is score a point. But the game is played on the 100 yards in between. And it could be a 60-40 or 70-30. I could talk about the 25-yard line. I can't really talk about the 75-yard line (laughs) But you know what I'm talking about, the 25-yard line on the other end of the field. Or the swing of the pendulum. That's a broad distance, a wide distance that that pendulum swings. And yet reactionaries in general, left or right, would have us believe it's all this and none of that, or all of that and none of this. Love it or leave it my way or the highway. Watch out for that. Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Wisdom of the Soul class presented by the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Very nice to be with you, and I appreciate you joining us live whenever you can, Sunday mornings at 11 Pacific. And if not, you know, we're podcast, and uh, the full program actually is available as a video on YouTube. Just search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Also, I haven't mentioned it in months, but I do private sessions, uh, intensives, and the first one's free, so there's no risk. You can set up a Zoom call or a phone call even on my website, and we'll talk about your interest, what it is that you think I might be able to help you with, and then uh, we can either go forward from there or not. Totally up to you. No obligation to to do anything. Just a free intake. Go to michaelbenner.com. You'll see a red circle with fireworks going off. And click on that or tap on that, and you'll access my online calendar. And you can book yourself at a time that works for you from what's available. And we'll chat on the telephone. Or like I say, set up a Zoom call. Today, I want to talk about... The whole process of personal and transpersonal development, which, as I was thinking about it a few days ago, just sort of naturally settled into seven steps or seven doors. I've called today's class the seven doors of transformation. So 
These are passages or steps. You could call them principles or keys. But I think a good place for us to begin in introducing this, and I do want to do an opening meditation, is to take a step back and ask yourselves why. Why bother? Or how about, why are you even here at a class like this? What is it about this material? Maybe you go way back to the KLOS radio days when I was doing human potential and personal transformation with a little overshadowing sense of spirituality and that we suggested even back then in the late 70s and early 80s that developing consciousness brought with it a refined set of values. It's curious. It's, uh, it's not often discussed, even by people who are, quote, on the path. This notion that there are certain ethics or values or uh, levels of morality even that are embedded in waking up. As you wake up, you become less animal-like and more spiritual in your orientation. What does that mean? Less concerned with material things, materialism and consumerism, and more interested in substance, which is caring, kindness, love, relationships, and the wonderful rewards that come from that. We find initially that each of us has a conscience, a word that sounds a little like conscious or consciousness, but it's spelled very differently. Conscience is developed along with consciousness. And is more than a sense of uh, right or wrong, or uh, even knowing the right answer, much less discerning good from evil. There's wisdom in our conscience, and we have to develop our intuition, not instead of logic, but as a supplement to logic. Intuition gives us access to conscience, and as we develop consciousness, we access these refined values, or our, our, our values, our ethics become more refined. How about if I say it that way? And consequently, we suffer less and we become more happy. That's why we do what we do. That's why we want to understand ourselves as spiritual beings or beings of energy. That's all that means. Spirit or spiritual, that root word, spiro, I think, <clears throat> is the root word for it. It really means breath. Spirit is breath. And uh, before we understood radio, for example, much less electricity, that was the allegory for a sense of spirituality or that life force 
that illumines and animates us, that vivifies us, that enlivens us, wakes us up, and again, animates us and and causes us to be sentient and, and aware and awake. Well, that's just another way of talking about energy. So the scientist talks about energy and mass, and the metaphysician is more likely to talk about spirit and matter. In between spirit and matter is consciousness. So it's sort of a corollary to Christ or Buddha or the soul that stands between God and man or between heaven and earth or spirit and matter. And this is the trinity. This is what father, son, and mother or king, prince, and queen Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Church had to take women out of the equation. That's what that's all about. And in our very first classes a year and a half ago, we talked about this quite deeply, this divine trinity and the importance of the middle, the consciousness aspect, developing higher consciousness or expanded awareness. That's the interface of spirit and matter and the lower correspondence of that divine trinity is the mental emotional and physical nature in humans so do you see how the emotional nature in that lower correspondence that emotional nature that stands between the mental and the physical the emotion the energy in motion the force that drives ideation into action is the entryway to the middle element in the higher trinity, the, the soul or the consciousness aspect, the Christ, the Christos, the son or offspring of Father, Spirit, and Mother Matter. There's a short course in metaphysics for you right there. So that's our path. You go through the heart, not the head. You can't think your way to an understanding of this stuff. I mean, thinking is part of it. There, there are elements of logic in metaphysics and mysticism. It's important to be a critical thinker and to be logical and, and to love empirical science. We don't reject that as a matter of faith. You blend the two. But having acknowledged the value of the mental nature and logic, intuition is much more of a feeling, isn't it? Intuition is much more emotional. And so that interface in the lower correspondence, emotion standing between mental thoughts and physical action, the thoughts, the energy, the emotion is the force that drives the energy into action. We can see that this is the path through the heart to the wisdom of the soul. That's the name of this whole series, the wisdom of the soul. And higher consciousness, that elevated perspective, that exalted sense of self, which is always happy for no reason and always at peace, and always has the answer and always understands. And I'm not going to say that any of us are going to arrive <laughs> at this destination, 
It's important to continue to remind ourselves that it's not a destination. Uh, even the idea of heaven is or nirvana, samadhi satori. This is not a place. This is not a destination. It's a level of consciousness, a degree to which we become awake and aware. So, what is that whole process? I'm I'm, I'm going to break it down today into seven doors, and uh, just touch on each one in a real cursory way so that maybe we can get a conceptual understanding, a big picture, or a, an overview of this whole process and remind ourselves, reorient ourselves, reminding ourselves, what is this longing that I have? What is this, uh, this hunger, this appetite to discover a sense of self that goes beyond the character that we play in our attempt to earn the approval and acceptance of other people. Beyond that character, that face that we present to other people, which changes depending on who we're talking to, you know. When my parents were alive, I talked to them, even as a grown man, very differently than I talked to my friends. And at work, we're probably a different persona. We present a different face at work than we do when we're at home. And so how many characters are there? How many of me do we have stored away that we present to other people? And what unifies that sense of self? Who are we? What are we for? These are questions we begin to ask as little children. And they persist throughout our lives. And some of us are bound and determined <laughs> to pursue it with vigor and, and figure it out. Who, indeed, who am I? Beyond the ego or persona nature, what is it that unifies all these different selves, these faces that we present to each other? Let's do an opening meditation, and then we'll talk about the seven doors of transformation. And now, open your eyes, wide awake, back in the room. Eyes open now, wide awake, with a little stretch maybe, and another nice, slow, nice, big, slow, deep breath. Ah, letting go again as you exhale. Feeling fine, better than before, eyes open, back in the room, wide awake. So, I have uh, some bullet points I want to consult, make sure I'm consistent here, on the uh, seven doors to personal transformation, and I've already talked about what that is, going through the heart, seeing the emotional nature, our emotional intelligence is the path, really the first door toward the wisdom of the soul and the transformation or metamorphosis. I mean, we all love that uh, allegory of the caterpillar becoming the butterfly. It's, it's so rich. The ancients also, if you've ever wondered why, the, why is there a snake 
on a stick on the ambulance. <laughs> what is that? And also the caduceus, which represents the spine, that has two snakes, which is more of an occult symbol. If you ever see that on an ambulance, they've made a mistake. It should be the Asclepius wand, a single staff with a single snake. That's the medical, allopathic medicine, pharmaceuticals, and surgery and such. That's what that represents. But why the snake? Why the two snakes on the caduceus or the single snake on the medical symbol? It's this ancient idea that because the snake sheds its skin and survives, that it's a symbol of transformation, of uh, metamorphosis, of reincarnation, of eternal life. And uh, that's the story of the snake. And they used to... Uh, in ancient Egypt, they would, in the hospitals, uh, release snakes at night. <laughs> a dozen snakes just allowed to roam, to slither freely around the ward as if they would promote healing. That's where all of that comes from. So we have to begin our seven steps or doorways to transformation with the idea of confronting fear. Unless and until we confront fear and recognize its many names and the forms that it takes, as we've already discussed, the idea of tension, muscular tension, or pressure, and the way it... Uh, debilitates the immune system and scatters our attention. And there's a reason for it. It's to help you survive any danger that may be triggering this fear. Most fear has nothing to do with danger. It's just what we don't know or understand. In fact, even when danger is real, clear, and present, fear is what we don't understand about the danger. So fear, all fear is fear of the unknown, whether dangerous or not. So doesn't it make sense that knowledge and understanding would be the antidote? That's what confronting fear is all about. It's a matter of great character. You have to turn and face it. If you always run from your fear or seek to ignore it or deny it or have another drink or smoke another joint or... You know, there's other other diversions. Maybe you're a workaholic, and there's just no room in your life. <laughs> you stay so deliberately busy, there's no room to worry. You're terrified and you're running. That's all you know. You don't stop and consider, what exactly am I running from? That's what we have to confront. Addressing emotional pain confusion, uncertainty, and unawareness in asking ourselves, why do I feel this way? What is the meaning, what is the significance of my emotional pain? That's the path, that's 
the direct path. You put your feet on the path when you turn and confront your fear. Remember Alan Watts saying years and years ago, if you meet a ghost on the trail, give them a hug. That's all they want. (laughs) It represents what you don't know. And it's arriving with a treasure, with a gift for you, which is to know and understand what it is you're afraid of. It's the, the fear and anxiety and stress Everything from panic and horror to nervousness and mild apprehension, phobias, OCD, PTSD, ADHD, general anxiety disorders, social disorders, all fear. And it's the brain's request for more information. That's all. (laughs) That's all it is. Number two is confronting ignorance. Well, number one, confronting fear, is why do I feel this way? Number two, confronting ignorance, is why do I believe this? Or why do I think this way? Why do I think this is true? Do you know this is true? Way back in the day, doing radio talk shows, part of the fun of doing telephone talk radio shows were just anybody could call, is helping people unmask their biases and their prejudices with simple questions like, why do you believe that? Well, where did you learn that? Well, what evidence do you have? I mean, why do you believe this is true? And often people would say, well, everybody knows this is true. No, everybody doesn't know i give you an example uh, that often would come up. Capital punishment. Well, we've got to have capital punishment. Why? Well, it deters crime. Does it? What do the studies show? Oh, I don't know. Well, let me tell you about the studies, and then I'd come up with some facts that show actually There's no evidence at all that capital punishment deters crime. Actually, states with capital punishment tended to have higher crime. Couldn't really explain that either. But not only was what they were saying untrue, it was uh, very untrue. (laughs) It was the opposite of true. It was deeply false. Capital punishment does not deter crime. Where did you learn that? Well, everybody knows that. Well, okay, everybody around you perhaps, but no, the research has been done. I just showed you three studies, four studies, five studies, high credible studies. And most people don't know why they believe what they believe. It's just an assumption often is not that uh, gets reinforced by some often conventional wisdom. Maybe you call it peer pressure. The people you hang with, the people you feel an affinity to, they have this set of beliefs, these maybe even values, maybe even it forms a culture, right? And so many things are seen through a political lens now that have nothing to do with politics. 
COVID vaccinations, masks. What's political about that? Abortion. What is political about abortion? Where, where's where's the politics come in on that? You see? And yet, we accede to that, or we concede the argument as if it's political, and we want government to do something. There ought to be a law. There, maybe there shouldn't be a law. Maybe there should be more liberty and more freedom and more personal responsibility. And that's the third point, is to accept responsibility. So confront fear, number one. That's first doorway. Why do I feel this way? Face it. Embrace it. And look for the meaning and understanding of your anxious emotions. Confront ignorance. Admit that you don't really know who you are, you don't know what you're for, you don't know why you're here, and you're fascinated. I did a whole thing yesterday with the salon group about how can your life be wonderful if you don't wonder? Continually question. Seek to be fascinated. Use beginner's mind. Become like little children, Christ said. Find the wonder and the awe and the mystery, the majesty and the magic in the things that we tend to overlook as adults because we think we know things. No, you don't. Embrace the ignorance. There's joy in wondering. <laughs> You, you can really make your life wonderful by wondering, by questioning and admitting what you don't know. And third, this idea of responsibility, we just did a whole meditation on the ability to choose your response. That's responsibility. Accountability is a good word for it also. This is going beyond awareness of situations to awareness of self. I was hired to write, and for three years I facilitated at the Sheriff's Academy in Orange County, California, a breakthrough self-awareness training because these law enforcement officers had been trained in situational awareness. They knew how to scope out the situation, you know, to clear the house. You just don't assume that, there's nobody hiding in the back room or under the bed or in the closet or the attic. You clear those spaces and, you know, you don't just presume that the guy's going to come out the front door. Maybe there's a back door. They come out the window. So you surround the house. You anticipate what somebody who wasn't trained might not anticipate. That's situational awareness. But they had not been trained in self-awareness. They didn't realize that if they had a bad day, that maybe if they had an argument with the spouse in the morning, that they could carry that energy to work with them. And an hour into the job, they pull some guy over for running a stop sign, and the next thing you know, there's a violent confrontation. People get hurt. People get shot. All because you were having a bad day as a cop, and you weren't aware of it. So, responsibility for how you respond, for 
how you feel, for what you're thinking, for who you are. Number four in these seven doorways is critical thinking. I think there's a quotation by Aristotle. I can't pull it out of my memory right now, but it's some complaint about kids today and why they have no respect for their elders. And I know this is, my point is, this is an eternal complaint. But I must say, even at the risk of sounding like an old codger who's just playing this old song again, what's happened to kids today? By when I was a kid, (laughs) you know. But the ability to think critically seems to have been lost or destroyed or uh, atrophied. It seems to be a combination of the deliberate undermining of education. Right-wing politicians are always talking about, uh, you know, reducing funding and even eliminating federal funds for education and promoting homeschooling. And then the technology, you know, living on, on an iPad, growing up on an iPhone, an iPad. There's a frustration we have with so-called stupid people. Well, they're not stupid. They may not be as well-educated as a generation or two ago. But the real problem, I think, is a lack of critical thinking. And it's replaced largely by this binary, either or, all or nothing. Man, this is the whole secret of Fox News. I'll tell you as a professional journalist, as a broadcast journalist, that's the distinction. There's no nuance. There's no third way. There's no permutations or combinations or variations. Everything is stark Either or, two-dimensional, all or nothing, Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, fascist or communist, and a lot of name-calling and bomb-throwing. And the far left and the far right are both guilty of this. But the problem is the far left and the far right and the whole left-right conservative-liberal spectrum is two-dimensional, doesn't allow for the middle. The middle way is a major concept of wisdom in Buddhism. You know, I often think of a playing field, a football field, for example, and the middle is not, consider the football field, the middle is not the 50-yard line. The middle, I would have you consider, is the entire playing field from this end zone all the way down the field to the other end zone. And the black and white either-or thinkers, all or nothing, are trying to play a game in the end zone, which is out of bounds. The only thing you can do in an end zone is score a point. But the game is played on the 100 yards in between. And it could be a 60-40 or 70-30. I could talk about the 25-yard line. I can't really talk about the 75-yard line, but you know what I'm talking about. 
the 25-yard line on the other end of the field. Or the swing of the pendulum. That's a broad distance, a wide distance that that pendulum swings. And yet reactionaries in general, left or right, would have us believe it's all this and none of that, or all of that and none of this. Love it or leave it, my way or the highway, watch out for that. Because not only does stress and fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, nervousness promote either or thinking, but either or binary, false dichotomies create more fear and more stress. Critical thinking is many things, but it includes discerning task-related thoughts from task-unrelated thoughts, something we also talked about yesterday in our small salon group. A task-related thought is purposeful and deliberate. You're performing a task, you're reading, you're writing, you're making a decision, you're solving a problem, you're writing a list, studying a map, making a chart, deciding upon a conversation or participating in a conversation, being logical, reasonable, doing a math problem. This is TRT, task-related thinking, and it's when we're at our best. Isn't she smart? Task-unrelated thinking is not even thinking, but we call it thinking. Task-unrelated thinking is the monkey mind. These are those largely negative, often self-loathing ideas. Again, if you want to call them thoughts, ideation, mental concepts that are intrusive, that come into your mind spontaneously without any deliberate effort on your part. It's what happens when you disengage from task-related thinking Put your feet up, stare out the window, or maybe you're doing the dishes or padding around the house, picking things up or getting your laundry together or or whatever, and your brain is filled with all of this monkey mind chatter, and we call it thinking, but it's not. It's just this random nonsense. Consider how many of those thoughts that occur to you are not true. Or are you under the impression that if it occurs to you as an idea, as a thought, it must be you thinking and therefore it must be true? Do you think every idea that comes to your mind is true? Do you believe every idea that comes to your mind about you is true because a big percentage of them will be critical, self-critical, self-loathing, filled with fears of inadequacy and concerns about what other people might think. Because you don't know, you don't have any perspective. Right? We call it self-confidence, self-esteem, self-regard, self-respect, self-trust, self-love. But we ignore the word self in front of each of those (laughs) and go to others, jumping through hoops, 
betraying our own best interests to try to earn from them the love, the trust, the respect, the regard, the esteem, the confidence. It's crazy. This is all part of thinking critically. Number five is developing emotional intelligence to discover that we're not what we think of ourselves so much as we are what we care about. Consider that concept for a minute. In the battle between the head and the heart, who wins? Who do you give credence to? If it's about the world around you, something objective, I think you probably should favor the head over the heart. Because the mental nature is more about your perception of objects in the world and your relationship to the objective world, a world of objects and forms, of things, and thoughts are things. Do you get that? The thoughts are things? They're objects? Emotions are much more subjective. They're personal. So if you have a battle between the head and the heart, but it's really about you, you know, should I go to college or should I go to a trade school? Should I take this job or that job? Should I retire early? Should I, I mean, whatever. Should I take a plane or the train? (laughs) Trust your heart if it's about you, then elevate your emotional intelligence above your mental intelligence. And then, of course, there's an interplay between the two because thoughts generate feelings, don't they? But also feelings generate thoughts. So it's like a ping-pong game, a back and a forth. I've seen psychologists, and, or I should say heard, Psychologists and social workers and therapists and psychiatrists even argue which is primary, the thought or the feeling. They can't they, they can't decide. They haven't <laughs> they haven't been able to figure that out at all. And so the debate continues. I I would just have you consider, I'm not telling you the way it absolutely is. I just have you consider that thoughts are more objective and emotional feelings are more personal there. They're more subjective. But school teaches us mental intelligence. It doesn't really teach us anything about emotional intelligence other than what we glean from our social interactions. Number, let me, let me summarize here. If number one is to confront fear and number two to confront our ignorance, to accept responsibility is third, to think critically is fourth, and developing emotional intelligence is fifth. What we're up to now, six and seven, get a little esoteric. Because we're approaching a realization that we're not animals. We have animal bodies. We have animal impulses. Sometimes we behave like animals. But we also have a spiritual nature. And in many ways, to be a human is to stand at the crossroads of the animal nature and the spiritual nature. 
was that old story often attributed to Native Americans where the elder says to his grandson, you know, I have two wolves in me, and they're constantly fighting. And the little boy says, which one wins, grandfather? And the elder says, the one I feed. Or the allegory of the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other were both. The devil is not a red guy, a guy in a red suit with a pitchfork running around tempting you. It's your animal nature. It's your ego. Let's get that straight. References to the devil are references to your animal nature, your base instincts. Survival. That's all we care about. The self-centered self, the selfish self, the ego, the narcissist within. That's the animal nature. But again, we have these aspirations for love and harmony and unity and connection. We want hugs. We want smiles. We want music and dance. Number six is to practice mindfulness. This is to learn that we are the awareness behind and above our thoughts and our feelings and our perceptions of the world. Those three lower worlds, mental, emotional, and physical, look, you know you are not the car you drive, but I bet you know people who think they are. You know you're not the home you live in or which country club you belong to or how much money you have, but we all know people who believe that's who they are. You're not the color of your skin or the, the religion or ethnicity that you associate with, but we all know people who believe they are. So you're not your body, but you're also not your thoughts. And you're not your emotions. You know why we know that? Because they always change. You never have the thought that lasted forever. They ebb and flow. They come and go. Well, how true could it be if it's always in flux? You've never had a feeling that was permanent. They all ebb and flow. How real could they be? They're valuable, right? They're like gauges on the dashboard, but just because you fill up your gas tank doesn't mean it's always going to be full. You have to watch the gauge. That's what thoughts and feelings are for. It's, how am I doing? What's my condition? But that's not who you are. So if I'm not what I own, and I'm not my body, my ethnicity, my religion, my skin color, and I'm not my thoughts, and I'm not my feelings, who am I? What am I? A practice of mindfulness, number six, will teach you you are the awareness of those things. Because often we're more aware of our thoughts than at other times. <laughs> awareness is a variable. But there is an absolute awareness, a capital A awareness, above it all. An absolute subjectivity. Absolute's a good word for it where we capitalize awareness, or if you prefer consciousness, 
or in Western religion, it's referred to as love. That's what love is. It's awareness. It's consciousness. And it stands above and behind. Thought, feeling, physicality, behavior, health, and your perception of objects in the world. And number seven, and this is the goal, this is the hardest of all to really grok. I am infinite consciousness. I am that capital A awareness. The goal is to make the subject of our experience an object of absolute, undifferentiated subjectivity. This is the divine I am or infinite consciousness. If you really want to wake up, you must understand that you are not merely the subject that you know as the separate self observing all these objects in the world that ultimately there is only one subject, the source, the absolute, what people call God, a religious word for happiness, delight, joy, bliss, ecstasy, an understanding beyond all understanding, awareness itself, the wonder, the awe, the fascination, you know, the feeling of wow, How cool is that? That eye-opening, lid-lifting, aha. That, oh my. When was the last time you allowed yourself to feel that sense of discovery? How about living there and being the absolute subject in a non-dual level of awareness? Unified. No separation, that's the goal.